All right, good morning. Hey, my name is Matt, and uh, welcome to River Church if you've not been here before. Uh, and I will say this, I'm excited for the message this morning and this morning in general because we are going to have a baptism. Uh, we're going to baptize some folks after the, uh, the message this morning. And I was talking to a friend this week about the message, and he basically said, Matt, it doesn't matter if your message sucks because the highlight is the baptism. I'm like, all right, pressure off. Um, so I am excited about the baptism we're doing and the stories uh, behind that. So this morning we are continuing our More Than Happy series through the book of Philippians. And we are going to be uh, looking at chapter 3 this morning, if you want to turn there. Uh, but what we're doing is we're looking at this series, it's called More Than Happy, and we understand that more than happy means that we are looking for joy in life. And uh, I did a quick internet search of how to find joy, and was curious to see what Google would pop up. So here's some things that I found. Uh, everybody has thoughts about how to have joy. Better homes and gardens. 10 Ways to Find Joys. Health Magazine, uh, Health Magazine Prevention uh, has 14 ways to find joy. WikiHow has 13 steps to find joy, uh, which also included pictures. And I don't know if the picture of the, uh, the steps were that helpful, but I found the pictures to be uh, quite joy-giving here. So, I mean, I just feel joy as I look at those people. So, take that off of there. <laughs> Um, so, but one of the places that has uh, ways to find joy is Huffington Post, 40 ways to find joy in your everyday life. And a couple of them stood out to me. Number one was play with a kid. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and then number seven was like, if you don't have a kid, then play with your pet. That brings me joy when I play with my pet sometimes. Uh, but as I went through this, they probably should have stopped at 10, because after 10, they kind of ran out of good ideas. Uh, number 15 was dance. I mean, if I dance, ain't going to make nobody happy here. Uh, number 16 was uh, pay a compliment to a total stranger. <laughs> that sounds a little bit dangerous and wacky. Uh, and then it is, these two sort of contradicted each other. Number 24 was prepare and slowly eat a healthy meal. However, number 37 was eat a cupcake. Those two don't seem to fit together. Uh, but I'm scrolling through this. I'm really curious. I'm like, what is number 40 going to be? How are they going to cap this deal off? Uh, and it was actually this. I was pleasantly surprised. Number 40 was surrender it all to God as a way to find joy. Um, but as I, as I kind of laughed my way and scolded my way through a couple of different websites, what I realized is really what people were saying is this is how to pursue happiness. And what we've talked about throughout this series is that happiness is based on our circumstances, which go up and down. But joy is based on joy we can have regardless of our circumstances. And so that's what we've been pursuing over the course of this series. And our theme verse comes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, which is, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And many of you have been going through uh, a devotional throughout the course of this series. If you're new, brand new this morning, you haven't been here the last couple weeks, go to riveridge.org. At the very, very top of the website, you can click and download a PDF of a devotional guide that will take you through the four chapters of Philippians. But here on Sunday morning, each week we've been looking at a key to joy. And just to kind of catch us up, because they somewhat build on each other, the first key that we looked at from chapter 1 is the key to joy is looking inside 
not outside. So instead of looking at our circumstances to bring us joy, that we look at Christ in us to bring us joy. And then last week we talked about this, is the key to joy is putting others first. And we found that when we serve people in our homes, in our workplaces, where we play, all the different places that we go, if we will put other people first, then that's where we find joy. And so this morning we're going to look at chapter 3 in the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, open up to that. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can open up the River Ridge app, click Bible, and then you can find the passage that way as well. So let me pray as we look into Philippians chapter 3. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have today to look into your word, to hear from you, to continue to understand how to have joy in our lives, joy that is not dependent on circumstances, joy that's not dependent on other people around us, but joy that's dependent on our relationship with you. I pray, Father, that you would show us that this morning as we take steps forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Chapter 3, verse 1 begins this way. It says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So I find this very interesting as someone who is a communicator. So Paul was communicating to the church at Philippi, and I communicate on a pretty regular basis to River Ridge. And he says, Finally, brothers. And when you say the word finally, it means that you're coming to the end, or if you say in conclusion, or as we wrap up, but this comes pretty much in the middle of the book. He says, finally, and then he keeps on going. It'd be like if I got to the middle of my sermon, he says, all right, in conclusion, as we wrap up, and then I kept going for another 30 minutes. So I just find that interesting as a communicator. But he says in here, rejoice in the Lord. And so in this, we're going to find another key to joy. And I'm going to give it to you up front, and then we'll work through the passage and see how it's fleshed out. But the key to joy is this, is being eternally minded. Being eternally minded. I want to start this morning with an illustration. And uh, this illustration was delivered to me this morning, so I'm very excited about it, but it's very large. Okay? Um, So this is a rope. And... uh, I asked somebody for a climbing rope, thinking like what you rappel on when you go climbing, and I got like a really large dead snake, which is a a rope that you could climb like to the top of a, you know, gym with. So, but here's what I want us to see with this illustration, is that this rope represents eternity, right? And so, at the end of this rope is this little taped off part, right? And this is the length of our lives. The average lifespan in America is 78 years. If you want to live longer, move to Canada. You can live longer in Canada. Or if you want to live the longest, go to a place called Monaco, I found out. But this represents the 78 years that we have. And some of us will have 80 years. Some of us will have 50 years. Some of us will have 99 years like Billy Graham did. But this represents the lifespan that we have here on earth. But I want you to imagine that this rope, as it stretches out, that this rope represents eternity. And it goes on and on. And so our life is just a short part of eternity. And what we're going to see this morning is that joy is found when we don't just think about the 70 years that we spend here on earth. 
but the light that joy is found when we consider eternity that will come after us. And we'll talk about this as we go through the message this morning. But I want us to get a glimpse and try and kind of picture we have our lives, but all of our lives come to an end, and then there's an eternity that goes on beyond that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Philippians, and we're going to look at two different sections, and they both speak to joy, but in in somewhat different ways. One part is the the joy kind of for us and our salvation, and then the other has a little bit different focus. So looking back in, again, the second half of verse 1, the end of it says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so what we're going to see here is that Paul is saying, I'm going to write some things to you that you're already familiar with. You already know these things, but I'm going to write them because it is safe for you or it is a safeguard for you. Yes, I'm repeating myself, but these things are so important that you've got to know them. And so I'm going to, we're going to go through what Paul says. And for many of us, it will be repeating something that we already know. But Paul puts it in there and says, I'm repeating it, because if we miss this, we go way off track. It's almost like a, a guardrail at the edge of a cliff. You know, you're driving along a road, there's a guardrail there. That's got to be there because if you go off the edge of the road, it's a long way down. So Paul's saying, this is that important. I'm going to write it to you again because it's a protection for you. So it begins this way. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we read that in our 21st century America, and we go, huh? What, what does that mean? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. If you were reading this and you lived in Philippi and you were part of the church, you'd go, oh, okay, of course, that makes a lot of sense. So let me explain to you what they understood, but maybe we don't. So he says, look out for the dogs. Dogs was an expression that Jews used to refer to the Gentiles as. So they would call them dogs. And it was a little bit of a derogatory term, but not exactly. It sort of um, described what they thought of them. It said, look out for the dogs. It would be, in, 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 when they talked about it, it described both what they believed, but also how they acted. So it would be like us saying, oh, he's such a heathen, right? If you say, oh, he's such a heathen. Well, that means he doesn't believe in God, but also he lives his life or she lives her life in a pretty crazy way. And so it says, look out for the dogs. But what's interesting about this is Paul isn't referring to Gentiles in this case, which is almost always how they refer to dogs, referred to Jews, referring to Gentiles. But he's referring to them, it says, uh, evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That what he's doing, he's actually referring to Jews. And Jews who mutilate the flesh are those who still believe that circumcision is necessary. Now, the way that this worked is that the Jew, there was a certain sect of Christian Jews who believed that in order to become a Christian, you had to become Jewish first. You couldn't just be a Gentile and then become a Christian. You had to become, you had to kind of go through this Jewish process. And so part of that 
was the males being circumcised. That's why it calls them mutilators of the flesh. But with that also came all of the different laws of the Old Testament that they had to follow. And so Paul is basically writing or speaking against these people because they have this idea that you have to become Jewish. You have to do the works of a Jew before you can become a Christian. And then he says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I was a Jew and I am circumcised and I could put confidence in the flesh or I could put confidence in the works that I have done in order to have salvation. He says, if anybody says, hey, I've got great works, I've done all the Jewish things really well, he says, I've done it better than all of you, but I don't put confidence in that for my salvation. And then he goes on to list all of the reasons that he has confidence or all of the works that he does. It says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he looks at his own life and he says, if works is the way to get to heaven, then I'm the stuff because I have done all this. Look at my pedigree. I took a little creative liberty, and I thought, if Paul lived today in our society, in our culture, what would the equivalent to Paul citing his history and his pedigree, what would it be in our culture today? And so this is what I wrote. And again, this is not me. This is if Paul was living here. If anyone has reason to put confidence in his works, I have more. Dedicated as an infant and grew up in the church, baptized in middle school. My parents were leaders in the church. I now attend church every Sunday, even when I'm on vacation. I read a chapter of the Bible every day. As to obedience, I follow all the commands in the Bible. In the church, I give 10% and I serve faithfully. In the community, I coach Little League baseball and soccer. I serve on the board of a nonprofit and my yard is always well-maintained. As to being a family man, I love and cherish my wife and am faithful to her. As a father, I have my children's heart and teach them to be good students, good citizens, and to honor their mother. I'm a good person inside and out. That would be a modern-day Paul. We would look at that person and we'd say, if being good gets you into heaven, then that guy is gone because he has it all together. And that's what Paul was saying. He said, I had it all together. Everything that I could need to work my way to heaven was there. But then he continues in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying, I had it all. I did everything that one needed to do if works were to get you to heaven. He says, but I consider them rubbish, nothing that I might gain Christ. 
You know, when I'm preparing a message, sometimes I'll, I'll, a word will stand out to me, and I'll kind of do a little research and try to figure out what this means. And, and the word rubbish stood out to me this week. I said, let me look and see, you know, a little bit behind that and thinking, you know, I'd find like garbage or trash or something. Uh, But several other translations actually use the word dung, right? And dung, there's another word that we use for dung, right? You know, but think about the force of what he's saying. He said, all these things that I have done, I count them as bleep, that I might gain Christ. Then he goes on to verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul said, my righteousness does not come from my works, from my past, from my goodness, from my religiosity. My salvation, my justification before God, my righteousness comes through faith in Christ. In a few minutes, we're going to baptize some people. And each of these people have made a profession of faith in Christ. The baptism that you will see does not save them. It's an outward expression of a decision that they said, I'm going to place my faith in Christ for salvation. So here's the big connection, the big question, and then I'll connect the dots between the question and finding joy. The question is this, is my eternity based on works or faith? Is my eternity based on works or faith? You see, the question is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Or... Are you trusting in your good works? Or is it some combination of believing in God and trying to be a good person? That still works. Or have you placed your faith in Christ? And here is why that gives us joy, eternally minded joy, is because if your salvation is not based on faith, if your salvation is based on works, then you're always left with the question, have I done enough? Well, do I need to be in the top 50%? Do I need to be in the top 90%? Do I need to be in the top 10%? Do I have to go to church this much? What if I do this thing, and does that, how much does that count off in this good scale, in this goodness scale? We're always left with that question of, have I done enough? But when we place our faith in Christ, then we know that we have eternity. You know, if we were to go back and look at my, the visual illustration here, you see, our life on this earth is short compared to eternity. But what we do on this earth with Christ determines where we spend eternity. And so I'd ask you that question, what are you going to do with Christ? Are you trying to work and be good enough, or are you going to place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Skip down to verse 18. It says this in verse 18. It says, For many of whom, for many of whom I am often told you, and now tell you even more with tears, walk as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. He's saying some of you are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And I'm not saying that people in here are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, but he's going to share four characteristics of people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's good for us to look at that and say, do I exhibit some of these same characteristics? And one of the things that we talk about is the Bible is a mirror. We look at the Bible and we say, how does this reflect on my life? And so we're going to look at this and say, do I reflect, are these, any of these four characteristics a part of my life? Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It says their end is destruction. So those who are enemies of the cross, those who have rejected Christ, that their end is destruction, separation from God for all of eternity. And then it says, and their, uh, and their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. This is an idiom. It's an expression that Paul is using to describe these people. And when we say that your God is your belly, it means that you want something right now. It's an immediate gratification kind of thing. You know, if you think about when you get hungry, right? You get hungry. What do you do when you get hungry? You, you have hunger pangs. You're like, oh, I'm hangry. I want something to eat. What do you do? You go get something to eat as quickly as you can, right? What you don't do is like, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to grow plant some vegetables so that in nine months I can have something to eat. I'm going to grow a cow so I can get some hamburger in a year from now, right? You take care of it right away. And so it says their God is their belly, that they immediately want to gratify the cravings of right now. And I would challenge you, is that something that you do? Because I think we live a lot of times with immediate gratification. You know, and sometimes it's kind of the the nasty stuff of having an affair or getting trashed or, you know, looking at pornography or stuff of that, like that immediate gratification. But I think it also comes in some more subtle forms, you know, where we tell what we think is just a small lie so that we don't have a conflict over something. You know, or we, you know, we do something like we, we yell at our kids. We lash out in anger at our kids to get an immediate response instead of sitting down and having a conversation with them. But that is the same thing. Of we want this immediate gratification because our God is our belly. Then it says this. It says, and they glory in their shame. This is when we take pride in something that we should really be ashamed of. And the first time that I really understood this verse, it really cut me to the heart um, and was just, just incredibly convicted by it. And this is a weird illustration, or it's, it's not an illustration, it's an example from my life. And you're like, okay, this is probably somebody else's life because this doesn't sound like Matt, and you'll understand why when I tell you in a second. But uh, when I was in high school, I used to date a lot of different girls, right? That's the part, like, really? Yeah. So it's hard to believe about me. But anyway, I used to date a lot of different girls, and and a friend of mine would say, Matt, you go through girls like some people go through underwear. And I was like, yeah, I got a lot of girlfriends. But here's the thing. I, I read this verse in college, and I looked back on high school, and I realized that I was glorying in my shame. And kind of the way that I looked at girls and the way that it was sort of just a, a, a game to see how, you know, if I could get a girlfriend kind of thing. And I look back on that, I'm like, I was glorying in my shame. And I challenge you with that same question. Are there things 
about your life where you're glorying, you're prideful, you're excited about something that you should probably be ashamed of. You know, sometimes we say, man, I'm so busy, I'm busy, 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 and we take pride in that because we're so busy. It's like, are we glorying in our shame? Are we doing the things that God wants us to do, or are we just filling our lives up with stuff? Or, you know, I think sometimes if we look at the things that we spend money on, the things we put money to, we glory in our shame about the vacations that we take or the money we spend on a car, the money we spend on a house, the money we spend eating out, and we, we glory in that when we really might need to be ashamed because we're not honoring God with our finances. Or how about this one? You know, we talk about our kids. My kid is amazing at softball or baseball or dance or singing or music. And we we glory in, we're so proud of our kids, but yet we have focused on these things to the exclusion of their faith. That our kids aren't in church, that we're not spending time as a family, we're not investing them spiritually, but we're so excited about how well they do in whatever this aspect is, and we're glorying in our shame. And, and I'm not saying we pull our kids out of everything, and anything. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying we need to look and examine what is it that we're lifting up about life and our kids and our own selves that we're super proud, excited of, and say, is that the right focus? Of our lives. And then the last phrase, he says this with mindset on earthly things. With mindset on earthly things. You know, as we think about, again, we go back to this rope. If our mind is set on earthly things, all that we do is we think about this taped off portion of the rope. We just think here and now. What what here and now? Do we do any thinking? about what happens past the end of our lives? Or is all the mindset that we have, all the mind thinking about everything that will happen between now and our death? Paul talks about the flip side of this in the next verse. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to become like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is written from one who is pursuing Christ. This is written from one who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is one who's living life that everything in his life is focused on eternity. That's why Paul is able to have so much joy in his life, despite all the difficult hardships, Because he's not concerned about this life. He's concerned about eternity. He says, I'm a citizen of eternity, a citizen in heaven. That's where his citizenship is. He says, that's where the focus of my life is. So here's the big question for us. Is my focus on earth or on heaven? Is my focus on earth or on heaven? Paul's life was about heaven, the future, not about the here and now. And that's why he had so much joy in his life. And I I mentioned this at the beginning. I want to point out that these keys to joy build on each other. That the first key to joy is that we look inside, not outside. We look at Christ in us. 
And then when we do that, now we have a focus on others. We put others first instead of ourselves. And then today, putting others first means that we think about other people's eternity, that we want people to spend eternity in heaven. That's what it means when we talk about having this eternal mindset, being eternally minded. What we want to do is we want to focus the time that we have, we want to leverage the time that we have on this earth to affect eternity. I want to give you three questions to ask yourself, three application questions. Here's the first one. Is there something that I need to stop? Is there something I need to stop? Is there something in your life that you need to just stop doing because it is not honoring to God? Maybe it has something to do with the glory and your shame or being earthly minded. Is there something that you need to stop? Here's the second question. Is there something that I need to start? Is there something that I need to start? You know, last week we talked about happy to serve. I'm happy to serve. And, and the joy that comes from that. Every serving role that we have at Riverridge Church points somebody in some way to eternity. Whether it's welcoming people as part of the guest services team, or whether you're a preschool teacher and you're teaching kids the very basics of the faith, God loves me, God made me, Jesus wants to be my best friend forever. But all of those are eternally minded roles that we serve in. You know, maybe when it comes to, is there something I need to start? You need to think about your finances. Do you need to start giving to God's work? You know, buying Girl Scout cookies is great. We buy a bunch of them. Giving donations to the band, that's great. But are you investing your giving in things that have eternity in mind? Or maybe for you, you need to start a prayer list. You've got a list of people who don't know Christ or who don't go to church, or you're not sure where they're at spiritually, and you're praying for them every day. And we're going to keep praying for people who are in the hospital and people who are sick, and we're going to keep praying for our family. But do you need to start praying for people who need to find Christ and to have eternity in heaven? And then here's the third question. Is there something that I need to continue with a new focus? You know, when we talk about living for eternity— and having, and what we do, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean that, hey, everybody here needs to quit their job and, and become a pastor, or quit your job and, you know, go overseas as a missionary, or quit your job and work for this. That, that doesn't, not what that means. When we say eternity focus, it means, what am I doing now, and how does it affect eternity? And a lot of times what that means is we keep doing some of the same things, but we do it with a new focus, Instead of just saying, hey, I'm doing this sport, or I signed my kids up for that, or I'm taking this, or whatever it is, that we say, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to leverage those relationships. I'm going to leverage that time for eternity. Instead of just thinking the here and now, I look beyond and I say, how can this help with eternity? What can I do in these relationships and these things to live for eternity? And that is where joy is found. We're going to watch a few baptism videos in just a minute. And as we watch these, 
I want you to listen to the testimonies, listen to the stories, because almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone involves a reference to somebody who found joy in living for eternity, whether it was a good news club or a wildlife leader or what a Sunday school teacher. But you're going to hear these stories of people who invested in eternity and the joy of it in investing in these people. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be together. Help us to find joy in having a focus on eternity, God. In Jesus' name, amen.